For years, we have dwelt in the shadows, applying our skills and knowledge in secret, speaking our truth to all who would listen, applying our trade for all those in need. Now, it is time to emerge into the light, wipe our eyes of dust, and venture forth into the world, make ourselves known, and invite all who seek our secret knowledge to work and learn with us. Welcome, friends and fellow seekers, to the secret society of the instructional designer. We begin with a discussion from some of our illustrious members about love and instructional design, continuing with a special guest, and then finish with one of our most loved traditions, a question from the question hat. Welcome to the Secret Society of Instructional Designer special episode on love. Um, my name is Rachel Stern-Lockerman. I am an instructional designer with uh, the City University of New York with their CUNY Online initiative. And I'm uh, Nick Noel. I'm the Assistant Director for Educational Technology at Michigan State University. I'm Steve Widener. I am the Director of Instructional Design Technology and Testing at Rocky, Rocky Vista University in Parker, Colorado. And I'm Clea Mahoney. I will be starting a new job in customer education for a tech company called Roost at the end of this month. And I'm also in Colorado. But I can't, um, like, I wish I could have one of those can and string telephones to Steve's house, but he's a little too far for that. So <laughs> we do meet on Zoom where we record this. <laughs> um, Clea, are you also teaching a class? Or... I am also teaching a class. I always forget about that, and I'm still behind. So um, shout out to my students out there. I will be prepping our week four lecture tonight before it goes live tomorrow, as per usual. <laughs> as we mentioned in today's intro, because it is the love month of February, we have a special topic of what made you fall in love with instructional design. I'd love to start because um, I was thinking about what... this. What if we came up with a topic and all of us have fallen out of love with it and we just hate it and it's just like, and we forgot to mention, oh, well, I'm sure the others will have something and then none of us. We like don't it. like that anymore. <laughs> no, I don't think I'll ever fall out of love in with instructional design. Um, I think because it is so varied and it can be done and interpreted in so many different ways, no matter where you work or where you live um, or who your learners are. Um, but I'll say that I didn't know instructional design was a thing until 2016 when I was interviewing for a role at Columbia University School of Professional Studies for Platform Support Specialist. <laughs> if anyone is wondering what the heck is that, that was my same question. <laughs> it was basically a learning management system administrator and faculty trainer role, helping faculty use the LMS and I remember um, in my second interview, it was a panel that included some instructional designers. And I asked, well, what is that? That's the first time I've heard of that term. And they mentioned that they partner with faculty to design courses. And naive little me asked boldly, you mean faculty don't design their own courses? And the interview panel erupted in laughter. And since then, <laughs> I've been so interested in learning more about it. I wish someone had told me earlier that there was this thing where you get to design learning experiences, but you don't have to be the teacher at the front of the classroom or behind the computer screen. That was the part that always scared me about teaching. Like, I, I don't love the attention. Now I'm okay with it because I've warmed up to it. Um, but yeah, that that's what got me curious about it. Just the fact that you could partner with someone who was really good at their subject and you got to focus on 
helping them create a great learning experience for their students. I think the reason that this is such an interesting topic is because very few people I know actually have a traditional route to instructional design of like, ah, I want to be a police officer. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be an instructional designer. We all kind of just <laughs> fell into it because we heard interesting things and we were like, oh, we investigated it further. So for me, I was just falling out of love of something else, uh, which was neuroscience, where I um, was doing research on hedonic intake and injecting mice with dopamine antagonists and to basically make them drink sugar but not get any pleasure out of it. And after I got bitten by the mouse, like maybe the 10th time, and I didn't even get superpowers one time. Yikes. I I was like that you're aware of that you're aware. That's of. true. It could be late. It could be late stage. Maybe instructional designer is my new superhero identity. I mean, has anybody ever tested if mice are good at instructional design? No, that's, so that's true. we don't know. Um, but also, the what really struck me was when I realized that even if everything goes perfectly and all my research is amazing, and I get my PhD and I publish and it's amazing, maybe maybe. At some point in the next 25 years, will I actually have an impact on an actual person? And that kind of abstract eventually, that did not like suit me. I wanted to be able to play fast and dirty with like data, like test something, get data, maybe like in a year be able to implement, um, really (laughs) see the impact my work was having. So like I happened to have been at at an event with the director of the Center for Teaching and Learning. And after going on a rant about why I did not particularly enjoy Mac computers. She was like, hey, you know, you should come work in my office. And I said, that sounds like fun. What does your office do? And that uh, really was my foyer into instructional design. And I was like, wow, I can really work with people to help them have real impact on students right now. Um, And something that we had noticed, I had noticed, and has been very known in academia for a long time, is that professors are hired for their ability to do good research. That's their job. Their main job is to research and publish as much as possible and bring in money from grants. And their, their job is not really to teach, but we've kind of put them in that role anyway. So to be able to both, you know, have this exciting you know, hands-on ability to do something while also facilitating students from having the best learning possible was really exciting to me. Um, and that's why I fell in love with and became an instructional designer. I'll, I'll say just briefly, kind of my first for, uh, first understanding is um, I didn't I didn't know it was a job until I got into a master's program for it. Um, it wasn't called instructional design. It was called educational technology. And then they started talking about this job of instructional designer. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that would be interesting. I think I like, you know, the one-on-one activities of like working with instructors. I'm pretty good at um, understanding technology. And I think the thing that really drew me to it, though, is the idea of helping of smoothing things out and helping people overcome something they're struggling with. Um, Cause I struggled and continue to struggle with uh, a lot of my, my learning um, and being able to, you know, bring that perspective around like, you know, not everybody is going to be good at everything. Um, here's how they may be approaching it or people who really struggle with like learning new technology tools, like, trying to show them like the ways to go about learning it um and how to think about it um i thought was really 
interesting again from the perspective of someone who wasn't naturally good at anything <laughs> that i can think of i i would say i'm i'm not sure i'm in love with instructional design these days it's more friend zone for me these days <laughs> um Shock, but... get off this show right now kidding. <laughs> 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 totally but, uh, acceptable. Our relationships uh, ebb and flow like anything else in life. There we go. Yeah, I mean, I completely fell into the field because I was kind of drifting around and having no idea what I was going to do. And a friend of mine was working at the University of Albany in their school of education, and he was handling IT for them. And he said, help. I need someone with a vague idea of what to do with computers. Can you please come and help me? I can pay you. And part of that pay can be you getting a master's degree. And I went, well, I've got nothing better to do at the moment. Sure. And, and I got into it and it's like, oh, this, this is kind of cool. This is the kind of thing that I can do. And this is more to the point. This is a variety of things to do. This is all these different people to work with and skills to get to learn and different technologies to work with. And that was kind of awesome. And then I went to work for Cornell where the focus was, here are 20 faculty a year who we would really like to have neat and new technologies in their classrooms because we're kind of sick of not putting anything out there and looking impressive because we're Cornell. And so I got about a half a dozen of these projects, and some of these projects were really cool, and some of them were just money being shunted off to faculty who were already doing other things because, well, it's Cornell. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was interesting because that was part of where I got to learn a bit about hospitality and, and restaurant business because that was one of the projects I wound up building was a restaurant simulator for an educational thing to, to come up with all these scenarios and things for students to have to answer. And here's costs and, uh, you know, cost controls. And here's how you decide what kind of uh, cuisine you want to serve and things like that. So it was like, okay, that was neat. And, and it was an overblown project in a now dead language uh, director, for those of you who may know that one. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I went through that. But it was interesting when I was at Albany, it was at the time that they were transitioning the entire program over into an online program. So the courses were online courses, although I could always go and harass the instructor just down the hall if I needed to, which was good because the next ID job I got was, hey, let's start building quality online courses. So that all helped out. <laughs> And yeah, it's it's been a neat progression. And now, honestly, the thing that I am happiest doing, um, because it lets me be a jerk, but for good reasons, is advocating for students with disabilities in the various courses and saying, okay, let's not forget these folks. Let's make sure that we're doing all these things for them. Hey, cool, you're putting this content together. Is it accessible? Mm -hmm. Maybe it should be, you know, I'm, uh, there's a, there's a kind of a theme and I think, you know, we've, one we've talked about a lot and Rachel alluded to at the, the beginning here was, you know, instructional design sometimes for, for a lot of people is something you find out about or fall into or discover because of, you know, extenuating circumstances or something, um, you know, for a field that is ostensibly technology focused in, in some regards, um, or at least the way you get into it is because you're 
good at some kind of technology. Um, it is so much a relationship building and um, communication focused field, actually, that I just, yeah, that I think like kind of lends itself to people like using their networks to, to approach others about. And that's kind of why we find a lot of um, accidental instructional designers to, to use an already coined phrase. <laughs> and it's, it's also one of those fields where I feel like you need to have the starting vocabulary in order to be able to find out more about it, or you just won't know what the heck is going on. Um, I noticed that a lot right around the time when everything went to shit. Uh, sorry, it's our podcast. <laughs> I'm not sure if we're, what, what rating are we anyway? Uh, I but know. I can bleep it out. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know anyway. if I've ever done that yeah. before. <laughs> Leave it in. <laughs> but, you know, March of 2020, when everything went pear-shaped, um, I threw a random post out there onto Facebook going, you know, I never thought I would be doing addressing something as an emotion, uh, as an instructional design emergency. But here we are. <laughs> and it was like all these people were throwing this at their networks and I wound up getting a whole bunch of questions. I'm like, okay, these are the people you're looking for on your campus. These are the people who have been trying to tell you that they're there all along. Um, so yeah, these are the words you're looking for on your campus and you should go and see what resources that they too are frantically assembling for you. And it was like, you know, right after that, when you had all of the, or you had so many K-12 instructors dealing with things and going, you know what, I'm kind of done with the classroom, but I hear this instructional design is a thing. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean about um, knowing the lingo. It's kind of like you need the secret password to join the secret society of the instructional designer. Shout out to our podcast. Um, we haven't set a password, so right now it is open to anyone, <laughs> and we always welcome I, your feedback. <laughs> I don't know. If you listen to the past 10 episodes, there's clues in there um, about what the password is. We've laid them out subtly. It might so be in the title. Listen to it a couple but um, I like what you said, Nick, about it being uh, a communication-related job, and that's something I was thinking about a while ago, back when I had delusions um, about going back for yet another master's degree. That is not in the cards anymore, <laughs> um, but I thought communications yeah. would be it, um, because it really encompasses everything. And while I have plenty of stories um, from myself and from other folks in the field of people who have been terrible to work with in terms of that relationship building. I really like to think about and remember um, the lovely aspects, talking back to our theme of the month, um, about moments where faculty and I were able to have conversations and they really wanted to try something different. Um, they wanted to incorporate imagery into their online lectures. They wanted to try out a new tool or a different way of um, managing online discussions with their students. And so that interest and us being able to learn from each other, that is something that I think helped me fall in love with it and also helped me realize that I'm pretty good at this, motivating others to try something new, to try something different, to support them during those beginning early uh, scary stages. Because I think that's often what faculty need, but they may be afraid to ask for it in fear of you know, looking dumb or looking less than an expert. 
So that's something else that I love about it. And that's it for us talking about what made us fall in love with instructional design. Next up, uh, listen to an interview with one of our special guests. Here we go. My name is Katrina Ware. I am currently a senior learning experience designer at an organization called WGU Labs, which is affiliated with Western Governors University. Um, it's a little bit different from a traditional higher ed role. We focus a lot on um, research and development and product and service, which has been a pivot for me. Um, prior to that, most of my career has been in traditional higher ed. I worked at Penn State for uh, close to seven years. And before that, I was at Drexel, um, did some time at Kutztown for my master's degree. So it's been an interesting uh, past 18 months for me, for sure. <laughs> oh, wow. So this is this is a relatively new change then? or? Yeah, I started at Labs last winter, 2022. So like around February, I think. <laughs> cool. We had a lot of a lot of people changing changing jobs relatively recently. Like um, I, the group that we do the podcast with, I think all of them now have changed jobs within the last year and a half. Um, so it's kind of crazy. The market is wild right now. I think for folks <laughs> in our field, it's it's has been interesting. My experience is the same. I know a lot of people. Well, and we know a lot of the same people. So yeah. <laughs> everybody's changing and and moving up and moving on. So. <laughs> It's real interesting, you know, um, for the longest time, it was, it seemed like everybody was kind of just staying in the same place and there's just been so much movement in the last three or four years. It's hard to keep up. Um, so, uh, what, uh, what brought you to instructional design? I think what, when I think back, um, when I, it started with, for me, when I was in high school, I, took my first online class when I was 16. Um, I was able to take courses at my local community college while I stayed in high school. And so I was kind of duly enrolled and it was just such an opportunity for me. You know, I went to a, a high school that was kind of out in the sticks. We didn't really have any major metro area nearby and, you know, it wasn't like a super fancy school or anything. So this was their way of offering just like broader opportunities for students who kind of were interested. Um, of course, you know, online learning back then would have been very self-directed. And so you had to be motivated to want to get through it. But I racked up almost a year's worth of college credits in my the last two years of my being in high school before I went on, um, which was like a huge, huge help for my parents and helping me pay for college. And um, when I moved to a traditional four year, I was able to finish in three years and it just gave me such a leg up. Um, and I really enjoyed it too. Like I loved just being able to sit in a quiet place and focus on my work and just like do that. You know, I had like my one, one task in front of me and move at my own pace and really just dig into topics that I was really interested in that I didn't have access to otherwise. And so I remembered that um, when I went to college, I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and in my, the back mm -hmm. of my head, I always kind of was like, oh, maybe I'll be an online teacher. But there really wasn't a huge demand for that <laughs> back in, you know, 2012 when I graduated. So um, when I was struggling to get a job as a teacher back then, as the like Great Recession rippled through um, K-12 education and put a ton of teachers back on the market, I went to grad school for um, instructional technology, it was called back then. Um, and I was able to do that 
primarily online while I was stringing together jobs to, you know, pay my bills and pay for class and all of that. So I took advantage a second time of, of online learning and got my degree that way. And so that's really what turned me on, gave me the qualifications to be an instructional designer. And um, it's always just for me been about making sure that that opportunity is as good as it can be for other people. And it's been really interesting for me to like reflect back on like the first online class that I took where I never met the teacher, never saw anybody, any students, um, barely got any feedback on my work. You know, it was very like, I did all this stuff, I'm sending it away and maybe I'll hear back in two weeks from the prof um, to what we have now is just so much more uh, engaging and, and um, you know, just, way way more than what it was in 2008 when I was doing it the first time yeah you know it's it's interesting how much it's evolved over time and a lot of that is is the ease of the technology but it, it is kind of crazy because it's not like the ability to have an engaged online community was impossible like 15 <laughs> you know or so years ago it was just harder you know, like there's been people, there's been discussion boards, bulletin boards, you know, for the entire span of the internet with people passionately debating and, you know, just absolutely hating or loving each other and in that community without ever meeting and without ever, you know, speaking, you know, synchronously or, or whatever. So it, it is kind of interesting how much it's, it's grown and developed uh, in just a short amount of time. I, uh, I had, I, I, before I, went into my master's program, I'd only taken, I think like two online courses. And I think it was a very similar kind of, I took like an environmental course where the only thing I remember is I had to buy a water testing kit and test some water. And I think I got a C in it. Uh, so, <laughs> and then I took like an intro to philosophy course and it was very much like, read the book. What was in that book? That's it. Okay. Is anybody in this class? I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It was a little, it was lonely. Um, but for me as like, you know, 16 year old kid, I got to like go sit in an empty room in my high school, like mm -hmm. away from, you know, distraction and, and just kind of focus. And so that to me was appealing enough to just like have something to occupy my time that wasn't like basic, you know, high school <laughs> drama and, and all of that. Um, but then just like the topics, you know, I, my high school class, I graduated with 150 people. Mm -hmm. um, our school offered math, English, science, history, um, maybe two AP classes. That was kind of the offerings at the time. Um, so just to be able to like have access to different topics and explore and, and do some of that like college readiness was really helpful for me. And it transitioned like so many of my skills into my four-year institution. So just good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's really impressive and interesting that you took the time as as like a high schooler to like explore different things that that you wouldn't have otherwise had access to. I have a I have a weird theory and it's based only on anecdotal evidence. <laughs> like for the most part people who become instructional designers were the ones who were like so good at school they wanted to do extra school or or the ones who struggled so badly or had real problems that they want to try and make it better for for everyone. I don't know if that's been your experience or if I'm just you know 
I have a lot of bias or something, but no, I think I found that with a lot of folks that I've talked to in our field. And I mean, I can definitely relate to that. I probably, if you would ask like some of my high school teachers, I was probably somebody who um, landed more towards the really good at school, at Mm -hmm. least the school that was offered to and available to me. I'm sure if I had gone to a bigger school or a school closer to like, you know, a major populated area, I probably would have struggled a little bit more, but I was a big fish in a small pond. Um, (laughs) So I, I, and this is probably all sounding like I really didn't have very many friends in high school. So going to do all a lot of like, I like sitting alone in a room. So that's, (laughs) yeah. Um, But I definitely was always focused. And I think it came from like my parents impressing upon me very early on that like my job as a teenager was to like, get good grades and go to college. That was what I was going to do. What I did in college was totally up to me, but like that was the path um, because I know that was something that both my parents struggled with themselves and they really saw it as like a way to help me have a better adult life. And it absolutely has been transformative. I mean, getting a master's degree, if I had had to go every day in person and not be able to work during that time, would have been prohibitive. I wouldn't have been able to get my master's. And um, even now I'm working on my PhD part-time and that's another thing I never would be able to do if I couldn't work and also do school. Um, I've just never been in that uh, echelon of people who can just put their life on hold and just do school, even though school was really important to me after, you know, K-12, obviously. Um, so it's it's been you know, that's that's just why I think this field is like really close to my heart, because I, I know there's like lots of people who are in a similar position and want to better their lives or want that next credential or just genuinely enjoy learning. But, you know, it's just not something that you can't not work. We can't not have family obligations. You, you can't just put yourself in a room like that's what I could do when I was 16. But now I've got you know, my dog is here crying at me, Got <laughs> family coming over tonight for dinner that I'm going to prep for after this, you know, it's just like not a thing that unfortunately we can't put our lives on hold for education anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I, I did a similar thing. I, I was working while I was getting my master's. I was actually working as an instructional designer as I was getting my master's in ed tech. And, wow, that was uh, probably very meta. <laughs> <laughs> it was very weird. And it was also a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, okay, I'm going to go talk to this instructor about this thing I learned last week. So that's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think I found though, at least for me, having some work experience now, I can say during my mm-hmm. PhD that it it really helps like just sink, to sink my teeth more into the material because I have that context to be able to like think, oh yeah, I can say, you know, what my perspective is on on education and how we learn and use that to make design decisions and hopefully mm-hmm. sound somewhat informed. Um, <laughs> if the dog noise is too loud, I can pause until he. <laughs> so what do you, what do you think keeps you in the field? You know, especially now that there have been some more expanded opportunities for people and we see people leaving higher ed or leaving instru- education altogether. Like, what do you think still, still keeps you here? Um, for me, I think, well, I, I've been doing it for so long. I don't know what else I would do, honestly. That's like the big thing. Um, and I feel really comfortable in this field, but I think that it's it's also always changing. So that's attractive to me. But I think there is, you know, we're on the verge of, and I don't know, maybe people always say this about education, but I really do feel like we're on the verge of changing the way that we think about jobs and, and how mm-hmm. people work and like why we go to school and and what learning, what role learning has in, in our lives. Um, I'm 
consider myself a lifelong learner long before I feel like that phrase became popular and catchy. But I think that's going to be even more important now as we move forward, just like the the type of work that we do, the pace at which industries become popular and then die completely um, mm-hmm. just requires that we have skills that, you know, don't necessarily fit into a vertical of like, uh, you know, disciplinary space. You really have to be like cross-disciplinary and, and have different skills and be able to look at what's going on in the world or in your region or or wherever you want to, you know, make your contribution in, in the world and say like, what are the problems and how do the things that I know how to do and the things I enjoy doing really apply to, the, to those challenges and what the needs are. And so hopefully as, as if that is really the way we're going with <laughs> education, um, that'll just kind of light the spark for people that like, oh, I need to figure out like, what's my long-term learning plan because I'm never, it's not one and done anymore. I I really don't think it is. Yeah, (laughs) I would, I would probably say that's, that's, I mean, that just has to be the case. I mean, things are, things are moving and changing so quickly. Um, And it doesn't necessarily mean like formal, like learning, but there's just so many things that just come up so quickly that you have to respond to them. You know, we've, I'm not going to go into it a bunch, but you know, on this podcast and, and all our lives, just talking about generative AI and just what does that even mean? (laughs) Like, how are we going to respond to that? Um, And it's interesting. I'll say just that, like, it's interesting how much just going back to practices that we espoused on for the longest time is actually just what you needed. Like, we don't really have to think of anything new. We just have to do something differently. One of the one of the talks or one of the people who uh, was talking about like ChatGPT was like, how do you respond to like this? Is like you just break your essays up, you have them do it in chunks, and they you have to they have to show you how they made changes, and it has to be done in smaller pieces, and they have to get comments on it, and then they have to show how they responded to those comments, and which is just what I've been telling people to do ever since I've been an instructional designer anyway before mm-hmm. that happened. And isn't that just a much more reflective way of of how we work as humans in jobs? You know, you don't ever do anything by yourself, um, you know, most of the time. There's always different levels of review. You have to take criticism. You have to respond to criticism in a way that is professional. So, yeah. (laughs) Almost nothing you do actually in your work is a product of your sole endeavor. Like so much is... Working with other people, taking information in, gathering information, putting it into some sort of documentation. Um, and that, you know, that should be reflective in how you're taught. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. So what is your favorite idea that you haven't gotten to do yet? Oh, I, I thought hard about this question because I've, I've really been lucky. I've been able to do a lot of things that I wanted to do. Um, but I'm one thing about that one I... you have gotten to do. So, you know. No, I did. Like in my reflecting, I was able to like come up with one thing that I haven't been able to do yet. And that is to design and then teach my own class, like something that is like of my own creation. Um, You know, I've spent so much time working on other people's stuff and I hand off a lot of things in my current job, you know, like they had become fully baked and we set them off, you know, for other people, but I've never gotten to like do that process for myself. And I, uh, I hope I get the opportunity someday. I look forward to it, but just hasn't happened yet. <laughs> do you know what you'd want to teach? I do. Yes. 
So if it was going to be like something academic that I was qualified for, I would really love to teach um, like a 100 level class of like folks who think they want to go into learning design, just because I, I feel like that would be really fun for me to just connect with people in the field. And, and I enjoy doing that, obviously, just in my own professional and personal way that I go about my life. But if I was going to do something fun, I would teach. <laughs> um, and I, one of my old supervisors has known this too about me for a while, but like a soap operas and culture class, like okay. soap operas are one of my guilty pleasures. I've been watching for a long time. And there is actually a, a bit of scholarship around like their um, importance in like introducing people to like different cultural um, awarenesses and how oftentimes like um, social movements or social change is reflected in those shows and that those shows have like an impact on their audiences who are otherwise like very in these insular communities and things like that. So yeah, I, not only do I enjoy them, and I think I would enjoy teaching a class about something that I, I find fun, um, but like there is actually a little bit of um, importance and, and value there of things that could be studied. So there we go. Anybody who's looking for like a soap opera instructor, there we go. There <laughs> I'm raising my hand. What do you think needs to change either in this field or specific to instructional design or education in general? Oh, specific to instructional design, one of my like gripes, I guess, <laughs> is <laughs> if I'm allowed to have gripes, I don't know. Um, I, I, what, I think it's having more precision in how we talk about the things that like the practices that we do and the processes that we use and the ways that we describe them. Um, something that has definitely come from my PhD kind of work, but the the like importance of, of using like precise terminology and not um, calling two different things by the same name and being like, oh, they're generally related like yeah that yeah. really just waters down our expertise and our collective knowledge as a profession and I think that hanging on to that precision is, is how we you know make make things happen you know that way you're not confusing you know the results of one process or outcomes you know with with something that it's actually really not all that related to so being precise about the terminology that we use and, and what we're calling um, certain practices, like, you know, what we say that co-design is or what we're, you know, when we're using specific models versus other models and assessment practices and, and that sort of thing. Like, just let's let's tighten up, folks. Let's be a little bit more precise in our, our language. So uh, just to kind of circle back to your your own experience, you know, as someone who was working and going to school, I wonder if that felt similar to how your job is now. Cause like often, at least in higher ed, I, I, it feels like um, instructional designers are blue collar academics for lack of a better word. Like we are practitioners who are implementing specific technologies and practices that have come up from and been refined by um, academic institutions, but then we're also having to research practices and sometimes, you know, write and present in an, in an academic setting on those practices. So, um, I guess like, did that feel, has that like felt similar to when you were kind of working in, in school or like, what does that daily kind of, uh, work felt like? 
Yeah, I think, um, let me know if I'm like taking this in a wildly different uh, direction, please do. but <laughs> I think what being in school, cause I'm, I'm going for learning design and technology, which mm -hmm. is like a fancy way of talking about, um, learning design and learning experience design. Um, it is let me learn about like the roots of our practice and our field, mm -hmm. which are very much rooted in like the military actually you probably know but some folks might not because i definitely didn't until i you know yeah. cracked open a book and read some papers <laughs> <laughs> but that that is like our history and it, instructional design has been positioned as this like process that has steps that you follow and when one condition is met you do a and when the condition is not met you do b but um, I think the way that we practice it now, it is much more human influenced. This is actually one of my research focuses um, mm -hmm. because I think, and if you do believe kind of like I do about that learning is a sociocultural, uh, you know, human endeavor um, and you bring that perspective, we are people who are, who have a lot of power and, and we act on um, these experiences and we're kind of players in, in muddying those waters a little bit or making them clearer, hopefully making them clearer. Um, but our, our processes now are not quite so rigid and systematic. And so that's where, as I think about, um, you know, what I've learned just from, from being in school and, and from my own, own practice, it's really being more reflective about like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What are the impacts of what I'm doing? Like, I'm not just sitting here connecting dots. I'm like making decisions that have real impact on things downstream that I can do my best to predict, but like what, what I'm doing now could do something completely wild and unpredictable later on that I never foresaw. Um, so it's something that I think just has a lot more thinking that goes into it and a lot more thoughtfulness than just like, you know, going through step-by-step -step check boxes. Yep. Okay. All the, you know, the, the rubric yeah. is good. Let's ship it. Right. Like there's a little <laughs> bit more that goes into it. So. Yes. Just you, you mentioning that has me like recognizing so many different things in our, in the field and probably that many fields um, have to reconcile with, you know, we're all, at the mercy of our own histories in some respect and you know what we grew up from and you know if you look at instructional design and i'm, I'm far from a, a scholar of the history of instructional design but oh i'm not limited... one class <laughs> but... <laughs> you're ahead of me yeah. <laughs> um, but like my limited knowledge is you know coming about you know in the early mid um 20th century and coming out of the military and then the but the prevailing psychological you know attitude at the time was a was a behaviorist mindset um and you know similarly that's also when public education was becoming more and more prevalent and so that those ideas even though they are largely i don't want to like discounted for for lack of a better term um in terms of how you apply learning to an actual person um, they're still baked into the structure of all those things. So like there's very much of like input A, you know, get B response if you don't move back to punishment reward kind of situations, you know, all these things um, that we kind of are taken for granted when we work with 
some of the people that we, you know, some of the people that we work with, but are actually not necessarily the best practice for if you want somebody to engage with with learning in a meaningful way. And you were also mentioning the idea of like where we take our stuff from and put it into our 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 practice. You know, like so many things. Like you know, I was talking today about universal design for learning, um, which came about from like an architectural practice. Um, and then we kind of just like, well, that's a good idea. Let's let's make that also our thing. And then like looking at Bloom's taxonomy and we're like, well, this isn't exactly for design, but we're gonna pretend it is. So we're gonna do that. Like, And I do, I do like that idea of like needing to be more precise and intentional about the, the things we do. Um, have you ever played like Katamari Damase? No. <laughs> oh, it was an older PlayStation game um, where you were a tiny little uh, person who was sent to Earth to make big balls of junk uh, for some reason. So you would um, basically be in starting very small. You would like be rolling up like candy and candy wrappers and bugs and stuff and then get bigger and bigger till eventually you're just making a ball that's encompassing the whole world. <laughs> and and sometimes I feel like instructional design is like that, where we've just picked up all these things and now we have a big ball of stuff and we call that instructional design and maybe we should be intentionally re redoing that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, and I think that's, it's an interesting visual to think about because I think that's a lot of how we practice too. Like the, all the things, you know, like I've, I've worked in traditional higher ed and so I know like I pick up, things from certain instructors or certain disciplines that I've worked in. And it's like, okay, well, I've got all of these things that I know about how like my institution largely works and then how this particular branch of that institution works and the online little segment of the institution works in these ways. And mm -hmm. that all becomes like part of our ball. And then we bring our own um, beliefs mm -hmm. and, and things that we value about the work to it also. Um, so, yeah. That's an interesting metaphor. I'll have to look up this game. <laughs> it would be really, I would love, it would probably take so long, but it just like tracing back the roots of where stuff came from and how it got integrated would be really interesting to see. And also just like, you know, since we started at the end product of like instructional design, that's mainly for online classes. Um, and then, but like, obviously it didn't start that way there wasn't any online classes you know yeah <laughs> like and why we've decided that the design practice is housed in an online environment instead of just being dispersed throughout all of education like why is it important to have intentional design in online but not in face-to-face -face all the time yeah well i think a lot of that's wrapped up in the kind of how we think about design and how design itself has been like historically um, gatekept, right? Like only designers design things. So like, I'm not a designer, so I can't do that. I'm a teacher, I don't design stuff. But if you broaden out and, and I think we're getting better and more aware of these kinds of things nowadays, but you break down that wall and you think about like all the different ways that lay people do design, um, then you start to realize like, oh yeah, there needs to be intentionality because otherwise you just reproduce all the things that you experienced and you reproduce all the um, all the good and the bad because you're not questioning it or thinking about it in a way that is with a, a design perspective. So 
So I wanted to end on our, our kind of like silly question and then give you an opportunity to talk about anything that you were super jazzed about that I uh, talked over. So, <laughs> um, so if you could have any uh, useless superpower, uh, what would it be? Oh, this is one I thought a lot about and I just cannot, I, I don't know, I, anything useless. I just feel like I would be able to find a use for anything. <laughs> That I hey, there we that go. I was blessed with, but I feel like something, and I, I like even went to the point of like, what's a list of useless superpowers just to try to get my brain going because <laughs> I I just like was coming up with nothing, but one that I um found online that I was like, oh, I can I can run with that was the ability to disappear when no one's looking at you, and okay. I just feel like that would be again, it's supposed to be useless. And I think in like the grand scheme, mm -hmm. like, oh, nobody's looking at you anyway. Why would you want to disappear? But that just feels like what a what a nice like way to just like pause the world and just be like, poof, I'm just gonna take a break for a, a moment and uh, just be in my own wherever in between wherever people mm -hmm. go when they disappear. And then just, uh, you know, rejoin the rest of society when I'm ready. So I don't know, I feel like I dodged the question a little bit there. No, <laughs> I think I think that's actually one of the only responses where you know and and kind of well maybe one of the only responses i could think of that matches what the the the, the technically the question's asking the spirit really the yeah <laughs> yeah but i think because like you know all the ones i'm thinking of it's just like it's not like they're useless it's just they're not they're not cool impressive you know yeah. like the one i was thinking of was like i wish i could always have a quarter like always find a quarter if i needed one. Oh uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's that's useful in that situation that's super useful you know it's mm -hmm. not useless it's just that nobody cares right. uh, but <laughs> but even then like I think it's kind of indicative of I don't know maybe the kind of thought process that either develops when you're doing design work or you have that and then that's what draws you to it is how do we use the things we have in a in a way that's useful you know um and you know also recognizes the individual uh abilities and and backgrounds of the of the people around you so you know um i think that was a very good response <laughs> <laughs> that's good yeah if there's one thing i know about folks who are in our field and related fields it's that we know how to make something out of nothing you know lemonade out of lemons for mm -hmm. sure so that's why i feel like anybody you can name something that someone thinks is useless and i'd figure out a way to make that like the the banner of your resume <laughs> so maybe that's my my superpower yeah maybe that's what it is is it's turning useless things into useful things there we go well, what yeah. a nice metaphor for instructional design gosh it's it's cliche, but some of the things I do love about educational design is turning nothing into something, you know, like just an idea into something that other people can actually experience. And that's that's one of the crazy things that humans do um, that I don't yeah. that we just kind of take for granted sometimes, you know? Yeah, that's true. Um, and you talk you we said before about um, a favorite thing I haven't gotten to do. One of my favorite things that I have gotten to do um, is is be able to see the impact of of some courses that I've developed with faculty actually like mean something to students. Like, for an example, when I was at Penn State, we 
had a very um, wonderful um, community member who was an art therapist that wanted to kind of bring art therapy as an elective to students at Penn State. And so um, we worked through developing the course. It became a series of courses. And, um, you know, she was great, which is like the foundation element of anything being successful um, in terms of a course. But being able to like think about this um, creative arts therapy type of process and how we teach it online and what it means to like do therapy online and, and that sort of thing was really interesting too. But the most lovely thing that came out of it was that um, some of her students actually used the the course to like kind of work through some of their own challenges that they were experiencing in their lives. And Penn State did a great job of highlighting one student in particular who um, was kind of working through the loss of a, a parent at the time and made a piece of art that was then displayed in the hospital that cared for their parent while, you know, in their, their end. And um, it was just like, I, I printed that one out and like tacked it on my bulletin board at my office back in the days when we all still worked in offices. <laughs> and that was just one of those things where, you know, when I was getting, you know, boring, you know, the boring stuff, there's always the boring stuff. But I would look at that article and with the picture of this, the student with their mm -hmm. artwork in the hospital and just be like, okay, they can't all be that, but that was great. So I can sit through this if it means I can do maybe one or two more of those, right? So that has been really nice to just like see the impact realized. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely something that keeps me in it too. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you so much for, for your time and for, for coming to talk with us um, and, and on the podcast. Thanks. You too. This was great. And good luck. I look forward to more episodes. <laughs>
you know, when you realize how small they are, it's kind of cool. If you were to imagine one of them blown up to kaiju size, that would be terrifying. <laughs> Tardigrades are like microscopic, right? They're like Yes. Yeah. I believe they, they the other name for them is water bears. Yeah. <laughs> and they've got like eight legs and little claws and this little mouth of just teeth, but you know, they're microscopic, so it's not really Okay, I thought of one, um, and I'm, I'll share it before I change my mind. Again, I love so many animals, so this is tough for me. But what's coming to mind right now is goats. First of all, the acronym, greatest of all time, animal. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, I remember that I think in New York City, when I was living near Riverside Park, they brought in goats to cut down on like the grass and the weeds to basically do some land management. Um, yep. And also, they're extremely cute. You can do goat yoga. I've heard that is a thing. They jump mm -hmm. around. They're really funny looking. When they're pregnant, they are freakishly round looking. It's like they're carrying around like extra bowling balls under their <laughs> skin on either side. Like, I don't even know how they operate in that state. But um, adorable, smart, eat trash, eat anything. And goat cheese and goat milk is really delicious. Uh, ooh, and shout out to the brand, I think, Dianus. They make like a goat milk chapstick and hand cream. And I, I do like that stuff a lot. So goats are the goat. And that is my <laughs> final answer. And they are also great collaborators with Taylor Swift. In case you have not seen the goat remix of Trouble. <laughs> I have, I not. have not, but now I know what That's I'm going to in the chat it. now. And so we'll put it in the show notes. to add that to the show notes or not, or you people can go look for it yourselves. So mine is going to be the noble honey badger because the honey badger is the embodiment of looks like a cinnamon roll will kill you. Um, and that is the energy <laughs> that I, I, I think I need to embody for my life, which is I am, you know, very nice looking, but I will shriek like a banshee if you attempt to come after like, I don't know if you if you threaten. I don't know, but like that kind of like take no. We're we're, we're not cursing on this podcast. We're bleeping out the cut. So like Nick will put in a, a bleep. Um, attitude is is you know what I think I should strive for in life right now. I think that's that's a that's a really good lesson to learn from from our animal friends. Um, I. I think okay so I'm going to say there's there was this whale right I think it was a humpback whale it's called like lonesome joe or something like that uh we'll find the the actual name for it um and he had a some kind of like genetic mutation where his uh um song was at a different frequency than other whales so like he would sing out in the ocean and then nobody understood him so he was just by himself and he didn't have a pod and i found out last week that there was another whale that has the same genetic mutation who can hear him and now they are friends so that so those two whales are the best animal uh because i am glad that uh, they are no longer alone and here I thought you were going to go for the exploding whale. Oh, <laughs> that would be horrifying. <laughs> well, fair. 
And that's a wrap. Thanks as always for listening. Questions, comments, and secrets of our trade can be sent to secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. That's secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. Thanks again. Questions or comments can be sent to secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. That's Secret Society, O-T-I-D, at gmail.com. <laughs>